I don't know. I I thought I was doing things correctly for for the sake of God. And when I came here and I saw everything with my own eyes, I realized that I made a big mistake. And I know I ruined my future and my son's future, and I'm deeply, deeply regretting. ISIS bride. The ISIS bride. ISIS bride. Hoda Muthana, an ISIS bride from Alabama, says she has a son and wants to come home. I think a lot of people should have like sympathy towards me for everything I've been through, you know, when I, or I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I left. Shamima Begum was one of three schoolgirls living in London's Bethnal Green neighborhood who joined the terror group back in 2015. She left London and married an ISIS fighter in Syria. Hoda Muthana and Shamima Begum left their respective homes in Alabama and London several years ago to travel to Syria. While there, they swore loyalty to the terrorist organization, the Islamic State, or ISIS. They married its fighters, bore children, and publicly supported attacks on Western targets by the group or those it inspired. Recently, both Muthana and Begum renounced ISIS and expressed regret for their actions. And now they are eager to return home. That looks unlikely to happen. Both the U.S. and U.K. governments have stripped them of their citizenship. They are not alone. According to the United Nations, up to 4,800 women traveled to Syria and neighboring Iraq in recent years to join terrorist groups. With ISIS now all but routed from the Syrian and Iraqi territory it once controlled, a significant number of them now want to leave. But can they? A new UN report examines that question. The report, entitled Gender Dimensions of the Response to Returning Foreign Terrorist Fighters, looks at what drives women to join terrorist groups and what happens when they decide to break those ties. Hi, how are you? We're here to see um, Alexandra Deere at the uh, Counterterrorism Directorate. Yes. 23rd floor, we are here. Alexandra Deere, a contributor of the report, joins me to discuss these issues today. She is the gender coordinator of the United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. Alexandra, thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. It would be great if you could help set the stage for us. We know a lot about the men who travel to Syria as foreign fighters. What role did foreign women play in supporting ISIS? So women have played a diverse range of roles. Um, and this popular label of a jihadi bride is really not very helpful in understanding the complexity and diversity of roles that women have played. Some women have been perpetrators and supporters of terrorism. Uh, for example, they have been very effective at spreading ISIL propaganda uh, and recruiting others to join the group, especially online. Women also played an essential role in, in ISIL's so-called state-building project. They were really the backbone of the society that were, they were trying to create there. So they served in uh, many domestic roles. They were, of course, essential in terms of giving birth to the next generation of fighters. Um, in addition to that, many of these women were complicit in some of the atrocities that were being committed, um, for example, against the Yazidi community. There were women who were complicit in holding Yazidis as, as slaves in their homes, mistreating them, and certainly turning a blind eye to the atrocities that the men were committing against those slaves. Some women also joined an ISIL um, 
all-female brigade that was um, there's a kind of morality police that ISIL that ISIL had to enforce their very strict gender code, and some women were also involved in picking up arms, especially once ISIL was facing significant military losses. So it is important that we talk about the very different roles that women have played and the potential risk that that they pose now, uh, especially when it comes to the radicalization of, of others. But beyond the diverse roles that they played as supporters of ISIL, we also have to remember that women remain disproportionately affected as victims of terrorism. And that um, it is important also that the boundaries between supporters and victims can sometimes be fluid. It's not a simple binary. I want to pick up on a number of things that you just said, and one of the things that you talked about is the is the women who joined ISIS, particularly in in fighting. And I think that there's this sense that women were marrying, they were the jihadi brides, and they were bearing children, but they really didn't have roles in in actually perpetrating any atrocities. Is that a naive point of view? Yes, I think it's a reductionist point of view. I think um, women did play all of those roles that you have just outlined, but that is also part of supporting ISIL, right? Being part of that of that uh, pseudo-state that ISIL created and upholding that vision of it, holding territory, creating this caliphate. Women were an essential part of that very idea. Um, and in addition to that, there is evidence that they have also played roles as, as actual perpetrators, um, sometimes engaging in violence, but sometimes also those nonviolent roles are very important and dangerous roles. Uh, I mentioned the example of women engaged in online propaganda and, and recruitment. Um, that is something that we have to take very seriously. Uh, women who have not been active as fighters themselves are very much capable of inciting others to commit violent acts. And the report specifically mentions that women are more susceptible to being recruited online. Yes, that is true. Online recruitment is is very important um, when it comes to women because in many societies, of course, they face um, restrictions when it comes to their access to public spaces. So sometimes they may have fewer opportunities for direct face-to-face engagement with recruiters, but they are able to, to go online and, and be recruited in that way. The women that are being recruited, one interesting point I found was that there are regional differences between the women being recruited versus the men. And what surprised me is that 35% were from East Asia. Why is that? So we've seen men and women from across the whole world join ISIL. Um, and there are some regional differences. Um, there are also some regional differences when it comes to, to the motivations um, of uh, why they joined. Um, But we also have a huge challenge when it comes to the data. And so um, if you're referring to some of those differences that we are seeing in these regional figures, one problem is that not all states systematically collect gender disaggregated data. So the figures that, that were cited, that is the best information that we have based on the data that governments have provided. In the report, you note that as the caliphate has grown smaller, women have returned home at a considerably lower rate than men. Why is that? That's a very interesting question, actually. And um, frankly, we need a lot more information and analysis of that. So um, to give you some of the figures, um, of the women who traveled to join ISIL, 
only about 5% have returned. And so in terms of the overall population of returnees, about 79% of them are men. Children constitute about 17%, and women only make up 4% of returnees. And in terms of the reasons for why that is, I think we have two sets of factors. Um, the first set of factors pertains to the actual situation on the, on the ground, and the second set of factors has to do with government's responses. So I think in terms of the factors on the ground, we have to bear in mind that um, it was very difficult for women to leave. Once they traveled to the caliphate, once they arrived in the region, they would have had to surrender their passports. They would not have been able to move around freely without a male guardian. If they had children, that would have made it even more difficult for them to escape. So we're talking about a situation where it was just very difficult for women to, to leave. And that probably accounts in part for why there are so many of them still there. Uh, the other set of reasons has to do with um, a reluctance that we are seeing on the part of many governments to bring those women back. I want to pick up on the point about how women were not able to move around and their passports were stripped and they couldn't get around without male guardians. And in many ways, you would think that that is a very stifling situation, um, something that the women who traveled to ISIS would not like. However, I have read reports where the women who have traveled from, whether it's Europe, North America, East Asia, have said that they have felt more liberated in, uh, in the ISIS territory and among the members of ISIS than they did particularly where they were living in the West. Yes, so that is an excellent example of how skillful ISIL has been in um, exploiting gender norms and doing this very deliberately as part of their recruitment strategy. So in the case of men, we've seen that ISIL has used deeply misogynistic and uh, submissive notions of, of womanhood. Um, it has actively glorified violence against women and offered these men um, the prospect of, of uh, sex slaves and access to sex as spoils of war. Um, and this was very much part of their, of their recruitment strategy. They also often used women and children to convey a sense of, of shame and emasculation towards the men. So they would, for example, put out a video where they would show women taking up arms to defend the caliphate. And the message there was, this is a man's job. How can you let these women do your job? Come and join us. In the same way, they also tailored their messages towards women and trying to convey exactly what you're referring to, the sense of empowerment. And especially when it comes to women living in the West, the message would be that as a Muslim woman living in the West, you can never be truly free from stigma and discrimination. Come to the caliphate and you will be able to live your religion freely. You will be empowered and liberated in that, in that way. And the problem is that we have not been very successful at countering those narratives, at unpacking how skillfully ISIL used those gendered norms and gendered narratives and proposing an alternative vision, including an alternative and more positive vision of masculinity. Do you think you deserve a punishment for what you did? Maybe um, therapy lessons, maybe a process that will ensure us that we'll never do this again. 
People watching will say to themselves, well, therapy isn't enough. I know that. In terms of the women who now have renounced ISIS and want to return back to their home countries, you know, we've seen the cases of Huda Muthana and Shamima Begum. What should happen to them? Well, I think at the international level, the UN Security Council has made it very clear what should happen. Um, these individuals should be brought to justice. They should be investigated and prosecuted if they have been found to, to have committed crimes. They should be, should be subject to a proper risk assessment and they should go through rehabilitation and reintegration programs. Um, and all of these measures should be carried out in a gender-sensitive way, taking into account all of the factors that we have discussed in terms of the different roles that women have played, in terms of their motivations. But what about the question of statelessness? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is, of course, very much the, the focus of the discussion right now and, and this question of can states strip um, their nationals of, of their citizenship. But I think the question actually needs to be not only is it legally possible, but is it a good idea? Is this really the best course of action for achieving our objectives? So we should be very clear on what our objectives are here. And I think the first objective is that we want to ensure justice for the victims. So the question is, what is the best way of achieving that through which court system? Is it, um, are these victims going to get justice if these individuals remain in, in the region? The second objective is, of course, security. And again, we have to think about security in an immediate and in a long-term perspective. Do we think that these individuals pose a greater security risk if we bring them back or if we leave them to their own devices somewhere where we have absolutely no control over their fate? And then I think we also want to ensure that our actions are in the accordance with the rule of law. And the rule of law applies equally to all citizens. And I think this is really important in terms of not just this being the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do. Because if we apply a double standard in this way, what we are effectively doing is we're feeding again into the cycle of alienation and radicalization. And this will come back to bite us again in the long term. And then finally, I think that we want to ensure that everybody plays their part in this. This is, I think, a collective responsibility that we have. As I mentioned earlier, we've had foreign terrorist fighters from more than 100 countries around the world travel to Iraq and Syria, where they committed atrocities amounting to crime, crimes against humanity and acts of genocide. We can't just wash our hands of a responsibility to deal with that issue. So I think we really want to think about this comprehensively from a legal, from a moral, and from a security point of view. Um, and we don't want to be rushing into, into emotional decisions and apparent quick fixes. This is a very complicated situation. And I think one thing is for sure, there are no quick fixes for this. In terms of fixes, um, the UN report also touches on solutions to this situation. And one one way to address it is to build more inclusive security and law enforcement institutions that recruit more women and elevate them to decision-making positions. How is this going to help? 
Yeah, I'm glad that we are that we are getting to this aspect because so far we've talked about women as perpetrators and we've talked about them as victims, but women also have a very important role to play as agents in countering and preventing terrorism, and they um, they bring to the table incredible expertise, experience, and different perspectives. So this includes civil society and and grassroots uh, initiatives where women are doing incredibly courageous work, often at great risk to their own security. But it also includes, as, as you mentioned, the participation of women in all other aspects of counterterrorism. So in policy making, in the judiciary, in law enforcement, in the security sector, and across all levels of, of seniority. So why is that important? I think it is important because we're not just talking about numbers. It's not just about co-opting women into existing ways of doing things. It is about real and meaningful change, whereby women move from being merely the subjects of counterterrorism policies to being real agents of change in how we design these policies in the first place. Is there life after ISIS for women who've joined? I think that's an excellent question, and I think we need to be thinking about this long-term perspective a lot more. Many of the women who joined ISIL and who are now trying to return are very young. And so we are looking at many years, decades in fact, of uh, their prospect of being part of society. And this is why it is important that we also move beyond just the narrow question of repatriation that is the focus of so much media attention right now. What we need to be thinking about is also in the long term, once these individuals have been investigated, once they have potentially been prosecuted and convicted of any crimes they might have committed, we are then looking at a very long-term process of rehabilitation and reintegration of these individuals. There are a number of interesting things to me in the report. How has your thinking about this issue shifted after reviewing all of this material? Yeah, I think one of the key takeaways for me from this report is really that looking at terrorism from a gender perspective is really essential for allowing us to design better and more effective responses. And in this sense, it is really important to better understand the motivations of women, to understand the different roles that they have played, uh, to understand their individual circumstances. And all of this is important and has to feed into how we design our counterterrorism measures. And this is something that we have learned from existing de-radicalization and, and rehabilitation programs. And that is that the more you can tailor these interventions to an individual's specific circumstances, the greater the chance of success. And this is something that when it comes to women engaging in terrorism is something that has been very much neglected. We have not had a full understanding of women's agencies, of the reasons behind their engagement in terrorist activity. The fact that we're having this discussion now is an essential step towards improving our own response and to make it more effective and to make sure it is compliant with human rights and with other requirements. How is that different from what the situation men face after leaving ISIS? I think um, the challenges that these women will be facing in terms of their potential reintegration into society are greater than they are for men. 
Um, and that has to do with a number of factors. Um, that has to do with the fact that there is still a lot of uh, a lot of stigma around these women. Uh, we are still not used to seeing women as violent perpetrators and of giving them a second chance. Um, we also know that many of the rehabilitation and reintegration programs, including within the prison system, treat men and women differently. And one important lesson learned that came out of the experience from other cases is that women very often receive less support when it comes to things such as vocational training and reintegration into the labor market. Yet that is something that is very essential for their long-term prospect of being able to successfully reintegrate into society. So if we're looking at these very young women who will have to have some prospect of being able to function in society, employment will be one very decisive factor. And so it is important that we look at the lessons that we can learn from other post-conflict situations, experiences with, with DDR efforts, experiences with the reintegration of um, perhaps members of, of gangs, of, of organized crime. Um, there are lessons learned here in terms of the issues that we need to watch out for. What's interesting about this topic is that often when we talk about gender, we discuss the ways women are marginalized. Here, however, one might argue that one of the burdens women often bear is that they're perceived as weak and therefore having limited agency. So on the one hand, we're saying that women are weak and that they've been marginalized. But then when you take a look at the cases of Hoda Muthana and Shamima Begum, they're stripped of their citizenship because they are perceived as being dangerous. They're a security concern. How do you reconcile those two points of view? I think what we are seeing here is um, is a certain kind of, of gender gender bias or gender cliches. And we see a lot of confusion when women don't conform to these gender stereotypes. And so the fact that we are looking at at very young women, girls, who play these very complex roles, who don't easily fit into categories of, of perpetrator, of victim, where it's unclear how much agency have they had, to what extent do they genuinely support this ideology, to what extent have they themselves been, been involved in some of the crimes that were being committed. These are not neat categories that they fit into. We're talking at the same time about very young girls who there is no doubt that in going to the caliphate, they have also experienced incredible trauma. They have been witness to horrific things. So it's again about these blurred boundaries between being victim and being perpetrator. And understanding and appreciating that complexity of women's roles is something that I think is very challenging for many policymakers. And so they don't know how to respond to this. And this is why we're seeing some of these, some of these reactions. One question we like to ask all of our guests as we wind down, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is this issue of having more female participation and more female leadership as we design our responses to this enormous challenge. Um, and I think one area in which women can really potentially make a huge difference is in the area of human rights. Um, we have to ensure that our counterterrorism measures are human rights compliant. 
but many continue to think that there is some kind of trade-off between security and rights. And this is truly paradoxical, given that we also know, and, and research has shown this over and over again, that human rights violations, including when they are committed in the name of doing counterterrorism, are among the most powerful drivers of radicalization. And women's human rights are particularly affected by this. Women suffer disproportionately from the adverse effects of certain counterterrorism measures. So I think this is one of the very real and important areas where women's participation can make a true difference. It's to make clear once and for all that this dichotomy between security and human rights is a false one. That you cannot have security without rights and you cannot have rights without security. Well said. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you so much. That was Alexandra Deer, contributor of Gender Dimensions of the Response to Returning Foreign Terrorist Fighters and the Gender Coordinator at the United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrasli. PS Podcast is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.